Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump wins in Iowa while the other candidates scramble for a second. NTD's Iris Tao was at Trump headquarters with the report. In Iowa, Trump broke the record. DeSantis upset Haley's poll projection for second place. What was the biggest surprise on opening night of the presidential nominating process? A commentator's reaction. This show must go on. Iowa voters braved life-threatening temperatures to do their civic duty. Hear what made them choose their candidates. Extreme winter weather and frigid temperatures are affecting 80% of the U.S. Get the latest update on the Arctic blast. Israel says Hamas is using social media as an instrument of war and hostages as pawns in a twisted reality show of horror. More on what Israel calls psychological warfare. And the conflict has impact beyond Gaza's borders. Another Houthi attack in the Middle East. Find out what makes this one a first. Also, Entity hosts the sixth international figure painting competition in New York. We look at some of the artwork showcased by over 50 artists from around the world. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTV. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, January 16th. Yeah, with those results in, Trump not only broke the record for biggest victory margin in Iowa, but he more than doubled it. Right. That's what many would call it still Trump's Republican Party, right? Yeah. So, yes, today is the day after a big night. So today's top news also, former President Trump secured a resounding victory in Iowa last night, displaying GOP dominance despite legal battles as he seeks a rematch with President Biden. So let's take a quick look at the final results here from yesterday's caucuses. The clear winner was, and of course, as we just mentioned, and to no surprise, really, Trump. He came in first with 51% of the votes. That translates to 56,000 votes. DeSantis came in second with 21% and 23, roughly 23,000 votes. And Haley pulled in about 19% of the vote with about 21,000 votes. And before dropping out, Ramaswamy had 8% of the vote at about 8,500 votes. So NTD's Iris Tao was at Trump headquarters last night after the watch party. It's a big night here. Former President Trump has won the heated Iowa caucus by a margin even wider than expected. The historic record between the first and the second place in the Iowa caucus was 12.8 percent, but Trump more than doubled that. Governor Ron DeSantis came in second, and Nikki Haley, despite polling showing her surging recently, came in third. Here's Trump taking a softer tone on his competitors during his victory speech here at his campaign headquarters in Des Moines our country to come together. We want to come together. I want to congratulate Ron and Nikki for having a, a, good, a good time together. We're all having a good time together. And uh, I think they both actually did very well. Meanwhile, DeSantis and Haley had this to say. In spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. Our campaign is the last best hope of stopping the Trump-Biden nightmare. And another surprising development in this Iowa caucus was Ravik Ramaswamy actually dropping out after getting only single digits in support. He also went on to endorse former President Trump. Watch. 
now going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency. And so I'm going to ask you to follow me in taking our America First movement to the next level. And that could help explain why Trump chose to praise Vivek during his victory speech here tonight. Vivek dropping out could actually help Trump significantly, especially as his base, Vivek's supporters, tend to be a more pro-Trump base. And when it comes to how tonight's win for Trump could go on to affect the general election come November, here's what Kerry Lake told me at the Trump watch party here. Watch. I think this was a huge message to the people of this country that the working folks in, in Iowa recognize how important this moment is. And President Biden's already campaigning off Trump's victory tonight, telling his supporters that this election coming up in November is really between him and what he called extreme MAGA Republicans. And Trump, meanwhile, after securing a key victory tonight, will go on to campaign in New Hampshire starting tomorrow and throughout this week in really nonstop campaigning efforts. So a lot to watch for as this race within the GOP gets slightly narrower, of course, as Trump gets a new boost from the victory tonight. Back to you. And for a breakdown of last night's caucuses in Iowa, we're bringing live political commentator Aaron Call. Aaron, thank you for joining us this morning. Seeing the results with Trump breaking the record, topping 50%, DeSantis finishing ahead of Haley, what candidate's performance surprised you the most? Probably Nikki Haley. You know, she had a lot of momentum from the debates and uh, some of the polls, the most recent uh, NBC uh, Des Moines Register poll, but she didn't you know, get that kind of second place I think that a lot of people were hoping for. I think the ideal scenario for her campaign was a strong second place over DeSantis, really providing her with some momentum uh, to giving her a chance to win in New Hampshire. But that kind of stopped her in her tracks, and she's you know still going to try her best in New Hampshire. Chris Christie dropping out of the race recently may help her, but uh, if Trump wins New Hampshire, even if the margins aren't as large, um, and his, you know, the, uh, the nomination may be uh, his for the taking as early as the next month in March. Right. And looking at New Hampshire, what's at stake for Haley, given her performance in Iowa there? I mean, one of the candidates uh, really has to win a uh, state. I mean, Haley, New Hampshire is probably her best chance, given the amount of uh, moderates and independents there. And even some disaffected Democrats can uh, come over and vote for her. Uh, but after that, the path um, for both DeSantis and Haley is unclear. You know, polling in places like South Carolina, um, Nevada, some of the other early states, you know, still show Trump with uh, some big leads. Maybe not as large as Iowa, but um, all of them, you know, way picking up a state or so. Maybe an upset victory is great, but um, no one else has kind of really presented a, a plan forward of getting uh, anywhere near the number of delegates needed to pose a, a great threat towards Trump for the nomination. And it just goes to show you that you can't always trust these polls because they had Nikki Haley at about 4% over DeSantis, but it turned out to be kind of the opposite there. Do you think the weather played into DeSantis's advantage? I do. You know, the, the top line polls, especially some of the last ones, were very strong for Haley. But if you looked at some of the underlying data, they showed some more troubling things like in terms of uh, how you know strong the support was or how enthusiastic the different voters was. Haley was... Um, you know, kind of didn't fare as well there, and a lot of her support was coming from moderates, independents, and Democrats. Um, but typically, in you know, base elections like this, you know, maybe aren't as likely to show up. And then when you throw in the weather, the the snow and the cold, um, you really have to be a committed voter in order to turn out to the caucuses in that scenario. I think everybody was expecting larger turnout. If you go back to 2006, uh, 2016, it was um, 
know, much larger, you know, 150 plus thousand. I think as of last night, he's only going to be about 100,000. And the amount of you know, millions of people that live in Iowa, and I think there's about 750,000 registered Republicans, it's a very small number. You know, even despite that, it's still a commanding uh, win for Trump. But, but yeah, I think the weather and a lot of other factors really depressed turnout, uh, and it wasn't uh, that much enthusiasm for voting in the end. Okay, yeah, that could be one factor there. And let's keep zooming in on DeSantis here. He put a focus on Iowa, and he had a large ground network there, and he sent out his message as the underdog. Do you think that was what was able to give him enough support to win second place? Yeah, he's certainly spent a lot of both uh, time, money, and attention all in Iowa. Um, you know, tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars uh, camped out there, visited all 99 counties, which uh, neither of the other candidates had done. Um, I think just given um, you know, their kind of the energy sector, farming, conservative uh, things on social issues, and the roots thought he was well set up to you know to do there. But um, you know, second place is, is okay. Generally, there's two or three tickets out of Iowa, and uh, certainly, you know, by about a two-point margin, being able to say that that's um, definitive could provide him some momentum. I think one of his best arguments is that, yeah, he may be the only option to Trump at this point, uh, given that um, a lot of his kind of second-place uh, supporters would probably go to Trump and uh, not Haley, and so he's a little bit more kind of conservative and, and pleasing to the base. So uh, he's got an argument, but he's not polling very well in New Hampshire. As much time he spent in Iowa, that's not been the case in New Hampshire. I think he's going to go to South Carolina before returning there. So he's really got to, to pick it up. And um, where Haley has a good chance in, in, in New Hampshire, there's not a, really a state you can say um, for him, even his home state of, of Florida, that a lot of the polls show that Trump's even doing better there. So, um, but yes, it's, he spent a lot of money. It's kind of well positioned there, but um, ended up second. But I think he wanted a little bit stronger of a second and not as big of a margin between him and Trump provide him with a little more momentum heading forward. All right. Well, political commentator Aaron Call, thank you so much for giving your insight on this. Anytime. Voters in Iowa didn't let life-threatening temperatures stop them from coming out to support their candidates. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on what they had to say as they cast their votes. Trump caucus captain Linda Boss says America is going to be a third world country if something doesn't change soon. I don't think there's ever been a more important time for President Trump. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket if we don't stop it. Trump, um, because I know we both feel the same and um, he's done an awesome job in the past and I know he'll take care of business this time. I lived the high life in 2016 to 20, so I'd like that life back. You know, that's all. Iowa voter Lucas Lofton feels Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has done a fantastic job and that his record proves it. I want to see what he's done in Florida, emulated and scaled across the country. Lofton says DeSantis is the whole package. He's what uh, conservatives have been asking for for a lifetime, for a generation. Jack Ackleson says voting is his civic duty. I'm going to support my candidate which I'm not going to tell you who it is, but don't read my hat. <laughs> Katie Joyce says Ron DeSantis would make an excellent president. I think he's a good, faithful family man. He's a lawyer. He served the country. Senate candidate Carrie Lake posted on X that the cold wasn't bothering those in Iowa in the least. Hey, America, we're here in Iowa. This is amazing. 
We are here a full hour early. Former President Donald Trump scored a record-setting win in the Iowa caucuses on Monday, earning a roughly 30-point victory. The results smashed the record for a contested Iowa Republican caucus. The margin of victory exceeded Bob Dole's nearly 13 percentage point victory in 1988. Next up is New Hampshire, whose primary will be held on January 23rd. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And with Iowa behind them, the remaining GOP candidates are shifting their attention to New Hampshire. The primary in the live free or die state is next Tuesday. Presidential hopefuls are working to get voters on their side. Former President Trump won big in Iowa, but a new CNN poll by the University of New Hampshire has the state's primary down to single digits. The poll has Nikki Haley behind Trump by just seven points, 39% to 32%. With Iowa second place finisher Ron DeSantis far behind at a mere 5%. The poll also has entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy at 8%, who has since dropped out of the race. On the Democrat side, Congressman Dean Phillips says he's looking forward to the New Hampshire primary. Polling doesn't matter until the voters come out, of course, right? But the polls are pretty clear that uh, we're gaining momentum, and I'm excited to demonstrate that on January 23rd. President Biden should surely be in the 80% range if he's a strong candidate. If I'm somewhere in the 20s, I'll be thrilled because we're just beginning this campaign. We're only nine weeks in, uh, and I'm just starting. And former President Trump is set to make a return to a New York courthouse this week. This as he divides his time between campaigning and the multiple legal battles he faces. Starting today, the former president will face trial in Manhattan federal court. A jury will decide the amount he has to pay in damages. That's after being found liable for defaming columnist E. Jean Carroll after denying rape accusations. This will be the second trial regarding Carroll's allegations against Trump. In the first trial, a jury determined that Trump had sexually abused and defamed Carroll, resulting in a $5 million award. This sum was granted due to Trump's statements against Carroll and denying the allegations. And the U.S. is experiencing about of record-setting cold across the country. The National Weather Service says about 150 million Americans are under wind chill warnings. The Arctic air sweeping across most of the U.S. is a weather pattern that could be around for a while. Dangerously cold wind chills will continue to affect much of the country today. The Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest could be stung with wind chills below minus 30 degrees in some places. Much of the U.S. is experiencing rough weather after an Arctic blast from Canada caused temperatures to plummet from the Pacific Northwest to the Rust Belt. At least seven storm-related deaths have been reported. Snowfall invaded mid-Atlantic states yesterday, causing slippery road conditions. In Washington, D.C., snow caused the usually green White House lawn to match the building's exterior. Places as far south as Kentucky and Tennessee were blanketed with up to eight inches of snow. Nearly 1,500 flights in the U.S. were canceled as of yesterday, according to FlightAware. Today will be the fifth consecutive day of flight disruptions across the country. Airports in Chicago, Denver, Buffalo, and elsewhere have been slammed by the severe winter weather. Classes have been canceled in schools across the country today, including in Portland, Denver, Dallas, and Chicago. 
Below freezing temperatures are even expected along the northern Gulf Coast from East Texas to North Florida. Texas power companies are urging customers to conserve power among weather-related grid failure fears. Over 90,000 lost power in Portland, Oregon yesterday after residents there were pummeled with over an inch of ice. Portland General Electric says the threat of freezing rain today could slow restoration of power there. Nationwide, around 110,000 were without power as of last night. Around 80% of the U.S. have experienced below freezing temperatures. Daily cold records could be broken from Oregon to Mississippi. After the break, Iran says it launched missiles into northern Iraq and Syria overnight with explosions reported near U.S. consulates and military base. More on the U.S. response. Israel says Hamas is using social media as an instrument of war and hostages as pawns in a twisted reality show of terror. More on what Israel calls psychological warfare. Tensions escalate in the Middle East as the Houthis hit a U.S. cargo ship with a ballistic missile. We have some analysis on the situation and how the U.S. is prepared to respond. Good to have you back. A missile reportedly struck near the U.S. consulate in northern Iraq overnight. That was in the city of Erbil in the Kurdistan region. Explosions near a U.S. military facility there were also reported. Iran says it destroyed a Mossad spy base with ballistic missiles. It described the targets as the main espionage headquarters of Israel. Iran also says it launched missiles at so-called anti-Iran groups in Syria. It says that was in response to the killing of its commanders and recent bombings in Kerman. ISIS claimed responsibility for the recent blasts in Iran and the deadliest attack since 1979 revolution. An unnamed State Department spokesperson told CNN initial indications show what he called a reckless and imprecise set of strikes. The official stated no U.S. personnel or facilities were targeted. And Hamas terrorists put out another hostage video yesterday claiming two had been killed and showing their alleged bodies. It comes after Hamas put out a cryptic warning on Sunday about their fate. Israel says psychological warfare is being waged. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest on the hostage crisis. In a Hamas video released Monday, 26-year-old university student Noah Argamani reads from a script and appears to be under duress. She says Itai Severski and another hostage are dead and pleads, bring us home. The video ends with pictures that Hamas claims are the bodies of both men. The script Argamani read claims Israeli strikes caused their deaths and states she was injured. Israel's military says it's examining the footage and other information at its disposal. IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari identified Severski, saying he was not killed by Israeli forces as the video claimed. The IDF says it did not strike the building where the three hostages were being held, but had hit nearby. Hagari stated Hamas is waging psychological warfare to terrorize and torment hostages, families and the world. Hamas is weaponizing social media as an instrument of war. The spokesman called it a twisted reality show of terror. Hagari says the IDF met with the families to give updates and expressed concern for hostages' fate, of which 107 are thought to still be alive. Every life is an entire world. Every minute is critical.
Israel's defense minister Yoav Gallant said Monday that intensive ground operations in Gaza are starting to be scaled back, but warned the fate of the hostages will be sealed if the fire stops. Without military pressure, no one will talk to us. Without military pressure, we will not be able to reach any agreements. Only from a position of strength can the abductees be freed. The terrorist group in Gaza threatened to execute hostages over Israeli airstrikes at the start of the war. And Hamas praised Monday's terrorist attack in central Israel that was in a stabbing and car ramming that killed one woman and wounded 17 other people, including children, at multiple locations in Renana. Israeli police arrested two suspects, both from Hebron in the West Bank. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Tensions escalating in the Middle East. The Houthis in Yemen struck a U.S. cargo ship yesterday, apparently for the first time with a ballistic missile. The U.S. Central Command said a bulk carrier owned and operated by U.S.-based Eagle Bulk sustained minor damage. The crew didn't report any injuries on board. The ship is continuing on its way. The ship was hit roughly 100 miles offshore in the Gulf of Aden. It was carrying a cargo of steel products. The Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack. They said they fired a number of direct and accurate missiles. The attack came after U.S. fighter jets shot down a cruise missile fired at a Navy destroyer in the Red Sea on Sunday. The Houthis have vowed to retaliate after the U.S. and allies hit dozens of Houthi targets in Yemen last week. A spokesman for the group told Al Jazeera that British and American ships were now legitimate targets. The Houthis previously said they would only target Israeli ships or those en route to Israel. The U.S. had also vowed that further Houthi launches would be met with a response. Joining me now for more insights is Grant Newsham. He's a retired Marine colonel and a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Now, good morning, Grant. It's good to see you. To start this, let's talk about what do you think is the Houthis' goal here with these attacks? It almost seems as if they're provoking an attack from the U.S. and the U.K., but what's in it for them? Oh, it gives them some prestige, but also it keeps the Americans, the British, and a few other countries on the hook. It keeps them absorbed with what's going on in the Red Sea. Uh, That is very much to the Iranians' advantage. And always keep in mind the Houthis are a a proxy for the Iranians. Uh, You have to look at it that way. Um, It's also allowing them to basically ransom uh, the international trade system uh, by closing off are threatening to close off the Red Sea, and it's had some effect already. So they're getting sort of outsized influence for really for a group that isn't even a fourth-rate military. But you can see how much pressure they've been able to apply and how much effect they've had. And basically, the Biden administration is just praying that they stop and that the Iranians don't do anything either. So you're saying they're gaining influence from this. So there, because because my next question brings me to this. There's different differing views on this. Do you think that the U.S. will see more attacks from the Houthis if they do not react to the, their strikes, or is it maybe the other way around? Oh no, the attacks will continue as long as we have these sort of retaliatory pinpricks. Uh, we haven't done anything to frighten the Houthis or the Iranians. Uh, The response has not been as overwhelming, as forceful or effective as it should be. And these attacks will continue. And I must say, if I was looking at it from Tehran, I would like what I'm seeing. Uh, You've got an administration uh, which is on its back foot, uh, which is hoping that you don't do anything. Uh, The U.S. Navy is doing its best, uh, but it's at the front end of really a 
unfortunately, a, a very weak policy. So you're saying more forceful, uh, forceful attacks are needed to stop the Houthis, is that right? Yes, that's correct. So, we haven't done anything close to that. Mm, so do you think that the Terran strategies like, like these ones would work on groups like Houthis that Biden calls a terrorist group, uh, or do they maybe need a different approach? I'm going to, because some I've read said that they are very used to war by now in Yemen, for example. So they're much more willing to take attacks and bombardment. So what is your take on this? Well, there's a limit for everybody. And there's a lot of people around the world who are used to war, who are used to difficulty. Uh, but we are the United States and we're supposed to be the strongest power on earth. As I say, there's been a lot of people who are good, tough fighters. And then at the end of the day, they lose. Uh, but we haven't done anything to close to put them in that position. Uh, this is the Houthis, for goodness sakes. And as I said, not even a fourth rate military, but you see how successful they are being and an Iranian proxy. And if you don't go after the Houthis and the Iranians, raise the cost for them. You will see more of this and you will see it increasing and in more places. And keep in mind, of course, that China is behind Iran, which is behind the Houthis. Uh, so, you know, we've got ourselves into a, a fix. And unfortunately, this administration just doesn't seem to have the sort of the steel or the nerve uh, to deal with it. Uh, but there is no no advantage, no benefit to appeasement, to hoping that if we pull back, these people will uh, appreciate the gesture and just leave us alone, leave the Red Sea alone, uh, let uh, commercial transport transits uh, take place as normal. And though the Iranians feel like they have the momentum and they're not going to stop and the Houthis are not going to either, it will take force to stop. Right, but going after the Iranians would mean serious escalation. Well, that's part of the deal. This has been going on for 40 years while we've been hoping uh, the Iranians uh, will actually turn out to be moderates. Uh, those moderate Iranians seem to be very hard to find. Uh, at some point, you either stand up for yourself and you make it clear that anyone who deals with this is going to pay a very steep price. And if you don't do that, then you are going to, you're going to be on the receiving end of this. And the Iranians smell weakness. The Chinese do too. The Houthis do as well. Um, and that's really a lesson that should have been learned by most people at about the age of five in the schoolyard. So just quickly here to wrap things up, um, how do Houthi capabilities compare here to Hamas? What is the U.S. up against? Oh, it's a different uh, sort of fight. Uh, what the Houthis have, though, is these uh, cruise missiles, a lot of drones and anti-ship ballistic missiles. And that's one of the most significant things that of this recent attack. It appears to be one of the first times, if not the first time, a ship has been hit with an anti-ship ballistic missile. Uh, the Chinese are making these. The Iranians are making these. The Chinese are exporting them, of course. But it shows what really a ragtag organization, no matter how tough they are, what it can do. And we're going to see a lot more of these groups uh, with these kind of weapons that are able to hold hostage, really, the international economy. Uh, so Hamas is a, is a bit different. Uh, but and at the end of the day, you know, at some point, you have to deal with these problems forcefully and finish them off. Uh, mm -hmm. Pinpricks are not going to do the job, other, but I can guarantee you, based on what we've done so far, we're just going to have more attacks if we don't take a different approach. Understood. Thank you so much, Grant Newsham, for your take on this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Glad to be here.
two U.S. Navy SEALs have gone missing in the Gulf of Aden. Defense officials say they disappeared yesterday. That was on a mission to take over a vessel carrying Iranian missile parts bound for Somalia. Officials said the boat, which did not have a country flag, was planning to transfer missile parts, warheads and engines to another vessel off the coast. The U.S. Navy says they recognized the boat because it has a history of transporting illegal weapons. Officials say one SEAL got knocked overboard by high waves as the team was boarding. His teammate who went in after him, now both are missing. The Navy said the rest of the team made it onto the boat. They took about a dozen crew members into custody. After confiscating the weapons, they sank the boat. Heading to break and coming up next, the recent volcano eruption in Iceland didn't cause any injuries or deaths. But it gave one man a memory he'll never forget on live TV. Hear his story when we return. And the British Parliament is set to debate a new bill that would allow the deportation of illegal immigrants to Rwanda. We take a look at what's at stake over this issue when we come back. Thanks for staying with us. A jailbreak in Ecuador as the country's security situation worsens. Over 40 prisoners are at large in northern Ecuador, the National Prison Agency said yesterday. The inmates escaped a jail in Esmeraldas, close to the Colombian border. The prison agency said security forces conducted a search operation on Sunday and recaptured five of the 48 escapees. The government said operations will continue throughout Ecuador this week. Ecuador's President Daniel Noboa declared a 60-day national emergency last week. It followed violence between criminal gangs and the government after the escape of one of the country's most notorious drug lords. The volcano that erupted in Iceland over the weekend appears to be much less active despite indications that magma is still flowing underground. The volcano forced the evacuation of an Icelandic town but caused no harm to the evacuees. However, one resident says he had the dreadful experience of watching lava burn up his new house on live TV. Here's the story. Grindavik Iceland residents were ordered to evacuate their town over fears of an imminent volcanic eruption in November. The volcano eventually erupted on December 18th, sending lava flowing away from the town. Residents were allowed to return to their homes a few days later. The town was again evacuated ahead of another eruption last week. Houses in the small town were mostly spared any damage from the lava flow but this man's brand new house wasn't as fortunate. Last week I asked the electricians to start their work so they could finalize their part of the work with the view of arranging for moving in before springtime. Things change fast. Up until the eruption, everything was fine with his newly built house. Neither did earthquakes seem to have done anything to the house. No screws had moved and everything was untouched, just like nothing had occurred there in November. Then the eruption happened. Mr. Emelson watched the event on live TV like many others, except his brand new house was burning he watched the event with mixed emotions. You sit and watch the news just now, showing everything going up in smoke. Then they played a song that made me burst out laughing. The song they played was I'm sorry, at the same time I watched my house burn down. This just made me laugh because I did not know how to respond to this. Smile, laugh or cry, I really don't know. A total of three houses in Grindavik were destroyed. The Icelandic government will meet to decide on support for the residents. In other news, the British Parliament is set to hold two days of debate over a deportation plan. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's bill aims to allow the removal of asylum seekers who arrive illegally in Britain. 
Here's the story. Britain's parliament is set to debate and vote on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's flagship Rwanda bill, which aims to override legal challenges to sending some asylum seekers to Rwanda. Let's take a look at what's at stake in this highly contested piece of policy. Taking back control of borders was a key pledge from Conservative politicians that led to the UK voting to leave the European Union back in 2016. In 2022, net migration soared to three quarters of a million people. The government's under pressure to keep those numbers down, especially those who arrive illegally in small boats to England's southern shores. This was Suela Braverman, former Minister of the Interior and staunch backer of sending migrants to Rwanda in Parliament last month. We are all here familiar with the problem. Tens of thousands of mostly young men, many with values and social mores at odds with our own, pouring into our country day after day, month after month, year after year. The Rwanda scheme, agreed in April 2022 by then-Prime Minister Boris Johnson, sends anyone who arrived illegally to Britain in January of the same year to Rwanda. However, European judges blocked the first deportation flight in June 2022. The UK Supreme Court then upheld a ruling that the scheme was unlawful. It said migrants were at risk of being sent back to their homelands or to countries where they could risk being mistreated. Although no one's been deported yet, Britain's already paid Rwanda 300 million US dollars. And while London hopes to send Rwanda thousands of migrants, at the moment the East African country has the capacity to only take a few hundred. But stopping the boats, Mr. Speaker, stopping the boats is not just my priority, it is the people's priority. Since taking office, Rishi Sunak has made it a priority to fast track the Rwanda plan. His government says Britain spends nearly 4 billion US dollars a year on processing asylum applications and around 10 million US dollars a day on accommodation for migrants. To address issues raised by the Supreme Court, Sunak introduced the new emergency bill the one MPs are discussing in Parliament now. The bill essentially reaffirms Rwanda is a safe country. It disapplies some sections of Britain's Human Rights Act and it lets ministers decide whether they should comply with any injunction from the European Court of Human Rights. So how does Britain's approach compare with its European neighbours? Many EU countries, such as Germany, have tightened their border controls to address immigration concerns. Denmark has signed a similar agreement with Rwanda, but has yet to send any migrants there. And Italy has announced plans to build reception centres in Albania. And coming up, NTD hosts the sixth international figure painting competition in New York City. The finalist exhibition features art from over 50 artists coming in from over 20 countries. Stay tuned to take a look at some of the traditional artwork. Good to have you back. Traditional realism showcased at the 6th International Figure Painting Competition hosted by NTD opened yesterday in New York City. Yeah, this year's exhibition features over 60 paintings from more than 50 artists around the world. Let's take a look at the scene. After more than a year of preparation, 
The sixth international figure painting competition hosted by NTD brought together over a hundred artists from four continents. After careful selection from the judges, more than 60 pieces from over 50 artists were chosen for the finalist exhibition. The art is currently being exhibited at the Salmagundi Club in New York City. The motivation behind this oil painting is seeing the citizens of Hong Kong willing to make a choice between good and evil for the sake of Hong Kong's freedom and their own will. Zhang Kunlun is one of the judges and also a renowned sculptor. He says the competition has an important mission. This competition showcases the traditions of divine culture, and that's what we want to do, to express truth, goodness, beauty, purity and brightness. Richard Yin is the deputy director of the NTD competition series. Through our joint efforts, we can help elevate humanity's realism art to its peak. As one of the top realism oil painting competitions in the world, the competition promotes the traditions of pure and beautiful oil paintings and has received high praise from artists worldwide. I think for every artist, an honor to be part of this event because, you know, you see the quality of the paintings and also the meaning everybody took so much effort and worked on themselves so hard, I think. If you want to reach this level, you have to put a lot of effort and dedication into your work. The award ceremony will take place on January 18th and will be free for the public. The paintings will be on display until January 19th. Some really skilled artworks that I see there. That's awesome. Yeah, and some current and former Entity News anchors are actually featured in some of the works. Holly Cullum and also Jack Bradley. Oh, no way. I didn't, I didn't have the chance to take a look yet, but I think it's open until 19th, so I'm glad to hear that I haven't completely missed a chance yet. I'm definitely going to go. Yeah, I was there last Saturday, and I mean, it really is great just walking in there. You get a real taste of proportion and balance and all those paintings. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, and the art is currently being exhibited at the Salmagundi Club in New York City. Investors are now ta taking a liking to healthcare stocks with a quick switch of topics here. Yeah, we find out why this is happening and what the benefit is for you with Peter Earle, a senior economist at the American Institute for Economic Research. Take a look. Well, the, the S&P healthcare sector is up about 6% in December, uh, despite being essentially flat throughout 2023. Um, there was a lot of activity in tech last year, um, and dominating the healthcare sector last year was the view that some new breakthroughs uh, in the treatment of obesity, for example, drugs like Ozempic and Wegovy, uh, were going to depress the earnings of many firms uh, that provide drugs for things like diabetes and healthcare. Um, in fact, uh, the U.S. and much of the world has an aging population which consumes more healthcare than younger citizens. So there's a lot of growth there, and the rotation away from tech is also driving some of the new attention that's being paid to healthcare. Yeah, and you can imagine that it's likely that there'd be a lot of tech investments giving this boom in AI. And it was also the drop yes. in demand for those pandemic products that also was making investors a little leery about the healthcare sector, too. So, how does this affect the average American? Well, I mean, one of the things is that, um, you know, we've had this, uh, uh, in addition to these products like Wegovy and, uh, and and some of the others, um, there's also been some noteworthy changes in health services. So the, the fee-for-service model has been replaced uh, by a shift to the value-based model. So the pain that's being experienced by many of the publicly traded pharmaceutical firms is uh, being felt as a benefit to Americans in, for, in, in, in the form of, you know, more accessible telemedicine and other such ventures. So those are not only things that are great for investors, but they're great for citizens as well. There's more sort of a um, a la carte uh, model of healthcare being offered now, which is very different than anything that's occurred in most of our lifetimes. 
Very interesting. And the employment in healthcare is up actually past its peak that it had right before the pandemic there. So what will yep. this investment mean for the healthcare industry? Well, I mean, the expectation is that healthcare stocks are going to increase their net incomes, which is their profit, by about 17% this year versus 11% for the broader S&P 500. And, um, you know, value investors, so those are people who look for securities where sentiment and expectations have fallen and the stocks are out of favor, um, have recently focused on healthcare stocks. Um, you know, there's an entire class of investor out there that sifts through the worst performing sectors and names uh, and, and looks for those momentarily beaten down names, uh, looking for them to come back. And so that's not only good for, of course, investors, but it's good for the firms that we use for our healthcare because they get more capital, they do more research, um, and uh, you know I, I, everybody wins when that happens. Yeah, and some of these investors were eyeing these underperforming healthcare stocks as a little bit of an opportunity here. But why is it that on election years, healthcare usually takes a little bit of a dip? Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, first of all, it's never guaranteed that a certain sector or stock is going to perform well after a bad year. Some of them stay down for, for, for years. Um, uh, but uh, there are some challenges ahead. And in an election year, you typically see that the, 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 the cost of Medicare becomes a political issue. Um, it's also because this is likely to be a contentious election in the U.S. There's probably going to be a lot of accusations and promises regarding the government's role in health care in the next four years. Um, on the other hand, um, neither Republicans or Democrats are likely to wind up with significant majorities in Congress. So the chances of major overhauls are, uh, are, are unlikely, but it's still going to be something that um, will be a, a lot more closely watched this year because of the elections than it would be in, in, in another. Fascinating insight into this. Peter Earle, Senior Economist at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Just ahead, a mom gets some scary news that her son has a serious disability. See how she rose above the challenge to transform the struggle into art. Welcome back. We're headed up to the end of our first hour here, so let's finish up with something inspiring, turning hardship into joy. In our next segment, a mom finds out her young baby will be disabled for life. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on how she climbed out of the despair with a little help from her friends to become an author of children's books celebrating differences. Little Archie was born to parents Gemma and Ash Stone in England in 2021 delighting his parents with his beautiful bright blonde hair. When Archie was around six weeks old, his eyes started making unusual movements, so his parents took him to a specialist. And as you can imagine, at six weeks old, he's very tiny, and I was very blissfully unaware that my new baby bubble was about to be burst. The little boy was later diagnosed with ocular albinism. That's a disorder resulting in vision problems, uncontrollable eye movement, and increased light sensitivity. My husband and I were very unfortunate that the doctor that we had had sort of no bedside manner. She just said to us, your son's visually disabled, and she listed off everything Archie will never do in his life. A sadness set in as the mom tried to wrap her head around his condition, but she would soon find strength in community. As he's now two, we've learned a lot. I've been very, very fortunate that I've made many friends through social media. And I'm in a WhatsApp group with around, I'd say about 30 other families whose children have albinism. And it is amazing. All the parents in that are phenomenal. And the stuff that they teach me has helped me realise that 
Archie is no different to other children and he can achieve all these things in life. He just needs the right support to get there. As Archie was soon thriving as a curious and happy toddler, Stone was inspired to turn his story into a book for children. Writing under the name G.L. Stone, she wrote her first book, Herb, the Little Star Who Twinkled Differently. Herb has one point sh shorter than the other. And filled with worry about what others will think about him, his bright light begins to dim. And the story is to open up that narrative with parents to explain to children that your inner glow is so important and what you perceive on the outside isn't as so. Gemma only has to look at herself to see how important a person's own attitude is. I, myself, I am actually quite badly dyslexic and a lot of people find that quite funny that I can write children's stories and I am very, very creative. But when I was young, I was put in a little box of non-starters and for a very long time I believed I stayed, should be in this box and I didn't deserve to venture further. And it was only as I really had children myself. So you know, my son, I was 23 when I had my eldest. And it was only really when I started to encourage him that I was like, oh my gosh, I should really take this message on board towards myself. Gemma shares her advice for other parents who find themselves in a similar battle. Speak, can't just speak, talk to people, look for ways of knowing more knowledge about the, the condition or the disability that your child has. And as I said, the, no, speaking to people on the same level as yourself can help in more ways than you understand for your own mental health. And being able to relate as well is really, really important. Stone has now written two other kids' books, The Late Christmas Wish and Fox and Duck. She launched the latter at the New York Public Library in Central Park by hosting a treasure hunt for kids in November. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. How precious the boy is, though. Yes. I mean, he's holding up that book like that in the yeah. bed. It is incredible. I think it's very admirable that the mom was able to over... She overcome not only that, but also her dyslexia, right? So she wrote a book and she channeled this into something positive, which I think is really hard to do. So hats off. Yeah, and that's a very deep message that mm. she's instilling in parents through that children's book there. And it must be so hard. I mean, that ocular albinism, that's only affecting one out of every 60,000 males, mm. the common form that is. Right. Yeah. All right, uh, we're gonna head into break for one minute, but we'll be right back. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD.
Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Good morning. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump wins in Iowa while the other candidates scramble for a second. NTD's Iris Stow was at Trump headquarters with the report. Iowa is behind us, but New Hampshire is coming up fast. See why a new poll says that a Trump victory is no sure thing. Bitter cold temperatures with snow and freezing rain causing problems nationwide. Get the latest updates of the ongoing weather onslaught. Israel says Hamas is using social media as an instrument of war and hostages as pawns in a twisted reality show of terror. More on what Israel calls psychological warfare. Two U.S. Navy SEALs have gone missing during a mission in the Gulf of Aden. What went wrong and what we know as the search continues. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Welcome. Today is Tuesday, January 16th, and in today's top news, former President Trump secured a resounding victory in Iowa last night, displaying GOP dominance despite legal battles as he seeks a rematch with President Biden. Let's take a look at the final results here from yesterday's caucuses. The clear winner, as mentioned, of course, Trump. He came in far ahead first with 51 percent of the votes. That translate, translates to around 56 thousand votes and DeSantis came in second with 21 percent of the votes and that translates to 23 and a half thousand votes. And Nikki Haley in third with 19 percent of the vote at about 21,000 votes and before dropping out Ramaswamy had 8 percent of the vote at just over 8,000 votes. NTD's Iris Tao was at Trump headquarters last night after the watch party. It's a big night here. Former President Trump has won the heated Iowa caucus by a margin even wider than expected. The historic record between the first and the second place in the Iowa caucus was 12.8 percent, but Trump more than doubled that. Governor Ron DeSantis came in second, and Nikki Haley, despite polling showing her surging recently, came in third. Here's Trump taking a softer tone on his competitors during his victory speech here at his campaign headquarters in Des Moines our country to come together. We want to come together. I want to congratulate Ron and Nikki for having a, a, good, a good time together. We're all having a good time together. And uh, I think they both actually did very well. Meanwhile, DeSantis and Haley have this to say. In spite of all of that that they threw at us, everyone against us, we've got our ticket punched out of Iowa. Our campaign is the last best hope of stopping the Trump-Biden nightmare. And another surprising development in this Iowa caucus was Ravik Ramaswamy actually dropping out after getting only single digits in support. He also went on to endorse former President Trump. Watch. Now going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency. And so I'm going to ask you to follow me in taking our America First movement to the next level. 
And that could help explain why Trump chose to praise Vivek during his victory speech here tonight. Vivek dropping out could actually help Trump significantly, especially as his base, Vivek's supporters, tend to be a more pro-Trump base. And when it comes to how tonight's win for Trump could go on to affect the general election come November, here's what Kerry Lake told me at the Trump watch party here. Watch. I think this was a huge message to the people of this country that the working folks in, in Iowa recognize how important this moment is. And President Biden's already campaigning off Trump's victory tonight, telling his supporters that this election coming up in November is really between him and what he called extreme MAGA Republicans. And Trump, meanwhile, after securing a key victory tonight, will go on to campaign in New Hampshire starting tomorrow and throughout this week in really nonstop campaigning efforts. So a lot to watch for as this race within the GOP gets slightly narrower, of course, as Trump gets a new boot from the victory tonight. Back to you. And for the post game of the nation's first caucuses in Iowa last night, we hear from retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, the executive director of the American Constitutional Rights Union. Lieutenant Colonel West, thank you for your time this morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you, Kevin. How can Trump maintain enthusiasm for his campaign coming out of Iowa? Well, I think he has to build on this momentum, and without a doubt, he has to talk about the policies of this current Biden administration and continue to draw that contrast of what he turned over to the Biden administration. Uh, inflation was like 1.4%. We see that it is still three times higher, pretty much so. You have to look at what is going on with our border, especially you have to look at what is happening with our national security and foreign policy. We just recently had the Houthi rebels strike a U.S. flagged uh, cargo ship there in the Gulf. So I think that if he continues to draw that contrast and talk about the issues and get past the narrative of the legal issues he's involved with, he'll be able to do quite fine. Right. That's a very interesting point you mentioned there about the Houthis. Let's look at New Hampshire here. What do you expect is going to happen there, given Ramaswamy's dropping out, Nikki Haley has strong polling there, DeSantis has a lack of star power there, in contrast to getting the endorsement of Iowa's governor, and New Hampshire's largest voting block at 40% doesn't belong to any party. Well, that's the important thing going forward into New Hampshire, because this is where I think Nikki Haley will believes that she will be the strongest. When you have Chris Christie dropping out, that's part of that never Trump movement. And I think that she is looking to gather those uh, individuals. And so President Trump in New Hampshire right now is sitting at about 43, 44 percent. Nikki Haley is about 23 percent. But if you start to see the 11 percent that uh, Chris Christie has shift over to Nikki Haley. This could be a very interesting race in New Hampshire, and I think that's what Nikki Haley is looking forward to. But again, if she cannot win her own state in the uh, subsequent South Carolina primary, that puts a couple of torpedoes in the broad sides of her battleship as well. And, you know, New Hampshire is going to be an interesting case study here because, first of all, Biden has a pretty low approval rating down in the low 40s there. He did carry the state over Trump pretty handily. And now the majority of the voters there, and they're not really in any particular party. So if they want to really contribute to this Democratic process here, they have no one to vote for on the Democratic side. Biden's not even on the ballot. So they may want to jump in and kind of ruffle things up for the Republicans. So I think that's going to be something to look at. Do you think that any of the candidates, though, need to change their approach coming out of Iowa and going into New Hampshire and South Carolina and so on? 
Well, I think without a doubt, Ron DeSantis is going to have to get a little bit more energy up in New Hampshire. He put a lot of resources and time into Iowa. I mean, that was very important for him. And I think it paid dividends for him, even though you still see a 30-point separation between Trump and DeSantis, number one and number two. But the most important thing going forward for President Trump up there is to appeal to those independent voters uh, out there and maybe some of those disaffected Democrats, as you just talked about. You know, New Hampshire has a uh, model, live free or die. I think that that is what President Trump should focus on. How do you live free? How do you have the policies that enable you to live free and try to see if he can strike a chord with those voters up there in New Hampshire? Right, yeah, Trump has his work cut out for him in New Hampshire and coming off of Iowa where the vote was cast in about a half hour, they, they had already called it. Do you think that DeSantis, having visited every county in Ohio in Iowa and then having these super PACs donate millions to his campaign, was actually making much of a difference there for him? Well, I, I think it did help him in the long run because a lot of people thought that Nikki Haley had a, a late surge and would put her in second. But the thing for Ron DeSantis is that uh, he's kind of stuck in the middle between, you know, Donald Trump and then the uh, donor base for Nikki Haley, who I think she spent uh, over $30 million there in Iowa, and she's going to continue to have big donor support. So where does the support come from uh, for Ron DeSantis? And so he has to have a good showing in New Hampshire, or else you may see the uh, funds and the resources for his campaign dwindle and dry out. I think Nikki Haley does not have to worry about that, and Trump has a very strong base, and he can expand that base in New Hampshire with the right type of message. It is great hearing your analysis. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, Executive Director of the American Constitutional Rights Union. Always a pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. Have a great day. And with Iowa behind them, the remaining GOP candidates are shifting their attention to New Hampshire. The primary in the live free or die state is next Tuesday. Presidential hopefuls are working to get voters on their side. Former President Trump won big in Iowa, but a new CNN poll by the University of New Hampshire has the state's primary down to single digits. The poll has Nikki Haley behind Trump by just seven points, 39% to 32% with Iowa second place finisher Ron DeSantis far behind at a mere 5%. That poll also has entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy at 8%, who has since dropped out of the race. So this vote might go to Trump since many of his supporters are part of the MAGA crowd. On the Democrat side, Congressman Dean Phillips says he's looking forward to the New Hampshire primary. Polling doesn't matter until the voters come out, of course, right? But the polls are pretty clear that uh, we're gaining momentum, and I'm excited to demonstrate that on January 23rd. President Biden should surely be in the 80% range if he's a strong candidate. If I'm somewhere in the 20s, I'll be thrilled because we're just beginning this campaign. We're only nine weeks in, uh, and I'm just starting. And former President Trump is set to make a return to a New York courthouse this week. This as he divides his time between campaigning and the multiple legal battles he faces. Starting today, the former president will face trial in Manhattan Federal Court. A jury will decide the amount he has to pay in damages. That's after being found liable for defaming columnist E. Jean Carroll after denying rape accusations. This will be the second trial regarding Carroll's allegations against Trump. In the first trial, a jury determined that Trump had sexually abused and defamed Carroll, resulting in a $5 million award. This sum was granted due to Trump's statements against Carroll and denying the allegations. 
And going on to weather, the U.S. is experiencing a bout of record-setting cold across the country. The National Weather Service says about 150 million Americans are under wind chill warnings. Yeah, you can feel it here. It's not quite as bad in New York as it is in the Midwest, of course. But that Arctic air sweeping across most of the U.S. is a weather pattern that could be around for a while. Dangerously cold wind chills will continue to affect much of the country today. The Rockies, Great Plains, and Midwest could be stung with wind chills below minus 30 degrees in some places. Much of the U.S. is experiencing rough weather after an Arctic blast from Canada caused temperatures to plummet from the Pacific Northwest to the Rust Belt. At least seven storm-related deaths have been reported. Snowfall invaded mid-Atlantic states yesterday, causing slippery road conditions. In Washington, D.C., snow caused the usually green White House lawn to match the building's exterior. Places as far south as Kentucky and Tennessee were blanketed with up to eight inches of snow. Nearly 1,500 flights in the U.S. were canceled as of yesterday, according to FlightAware. Today will be the fifth consecutive day of flight disruptions across the country. Airports in Chicago, Denver, Buffalo, and elsewhere have been slammed by the severe winter weather. Classes have been canceled in schools across the country today, including in Portland, Denver, Dallas, and Chicago. Below freezing temperatures are even expected along the northern Gulf Coast from East Texas to North Florida. Texas power companies are urging customers to conserve power among weather-related grid failure fears. Over 90,000 lost power in Portland, Oregon yesterday after residents there were pummeled with over an inch of ice. Portland General Electric says the threat of freezing rain today could slow restoration of power there. Nationwide, around 110,000 were without power as of last night. Around 80% of the U.S. have experienced below freezing temperatures. Daily cold records could be broken from Oregon to Mississippi. Up next, an update on the hostage crisis in the Israel-Hamas war. New claims from Hamas terrorists on the hostages' fate. And Israel's military spokesman reacts, saying Hamas is waging psychological warfare through social media. More on what he called a twisted reality show of terror. And reported explosions and missiles hitting near the U.S. consulate in northern Iraq overnight. Iran says it destroyed targets in Erbil and Syria. Find out how the U.S. reacted. morning again and thanks for staying with us. Hamas terrorists put out another hostage video yesterday claiming two had been killed and showing their alleged bodies. It comes after Hamas put out a cryptic warning on Sunday about their fate. Israel says psychological warfare is being waged. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest on the hostage crisis. In a Hamas video released Monday, 26-year-old university student Noah Argamani reads from a script and appears to be under duress. She says Itai Severski and another hostage are dead and pleads, bring us home. The video ends with pictures that Hamas claims are the bodies of both men. The script Argamani read claims Israeli strikes caused their deaths and states she was injured. Israel's military says it's examining the footage and other information at its disposal. 
IDF spokesman Daniel Hagari identified Seversky, saying he was not killed by Israeli forces as the video claimed. The IDF says it did not strike the building where the three hostages were being held, but had hit nearby. Hagari stated Hamas is waging psychological warfare to terrorize and torment hostages, families and the world. Hamas is weaponizing social media as an instrument of war. The spokesman called it a twisted reality show of terror. Hagari says the IDF met with the families to give updates and expressed concern for hostages' fate, of which 107 are thought to still be alive. Every life is an entire world. Every minute is critical. Israel's Defense Minister Yoav Gallant said Monday that intensive ground operations in Gaza are starting to be scaled back, but warned the fate of the hostages will be sealed if the fire stops. Without military pressure, no one will talk to us. Without military pressure, we will not be able to reach any agreements. Only from a position of strength can the abductees be freed. The terrorist group in Gaza threatened to execute hostages over Israeli airstrikes at the start of the war. And Hamas praised Monday's terrorist attack in central Israel that was in a stabbing and car ramming that killed one woman and wounded 17 other people, including children, at multiple locations in Renana. Israeli police arrested two suspects, both from Hebron in the West Bank. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. A missile reportedly struck near the U.S. consulate in northern Iraq overnight. That was in the city of Erbil in the Kurdistan region. Explosions near a U.S. military facility there were also reported. And Iran says it destroyed a Mossad spy base with ballistic missiles. It described the target as the main espionage headquarters of Israel. Iran also says it launched missiles at so-called anti-Iran groups in Syria. It says that was in response to the killing of its commanders and recent bombings in Kerman. ISIS claimed responsibility for the recent blasts in Iran in the deadliest attack since its 1979 revolution. An unnamed State Department spokesperson told CNN initial indications show what he called a reckless and imprecise set of strikes. The official stated no U.S. personnel or facilities were targeted. And tensions escalating in the Middle East. The Houthis in Yemen struck a U.S. cargo ship yesterday, apparently for the first time with a ballistic missile. The U.S. Central Command said a bulk carrier owned and operated by U.S.-based Eagle Bulk sustained minor damage. The crew didn't report any injuries on board. The ship is continuing on its way. The ship was hit roughly 100 miles offshore in the Gulf of Aden. It was carrying a cargo of steel products. The Houthis claimed responsibility for the attack. They said they fired a number of direct and accurate missiles. The attack came after U.S. fighter jets shot down a cruise missile fired at a Navy destroyer in the Red Sea on Sunday. The Houthis have vowed to retaliate after the U.S. and allies hit dozens of Houthi targets in Yemen last week. A spokesman for the group told Al Jazeera that British and American ships were now legitimate targets. The Houthis previously said they would only target Israeli ships or those en route to Israel. The U.S. had also vowed that further Houthi launches would be met with a response. Earlier, I spoke to Grant Newsham, a retired Marine colonel and a senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. I asked him what the Houthis are trying to accomplish after their most recent strikes on U.S. cargo ships in the Red Sea. It gives them some prestige, but also it keeps the Americans, the British and a few other countries on the hook. It keeps them absorbed with what's going on in the Red Sea. Uh, that is very much to the Iranians' advantage. And always keep in mind the Houthis are a, a proxy for the Iranians. Uh, you have to look at it that way. 
Um, it's also allowing them to basically ransom uh, the international trade system uh, by closing off or threatening to close off the Red Sea, and it's had some effect already. Do you think that the U.S. will see more attacks from the Houthis if they do not react to the, their strikes, or is it maybe the other way around? Oh, no, the attacks will continue as long as we have these sort of retaliatory pinpricks. Uh, we haven't done anything to frighten the Houthis or the Iranians. Uh, the response has not been as overwhelming, as forceful or effective as it should be. And these attacks will continue. And I must say, if I was looking at it from Tehran, I would like what I'm seeing. Uh, you've got a, an administration uh, which is on its back foot, uh, which is hoping that you don't do anything. Uh, the U.S. Navy is doing its best, uh, but it's at the front end of really, uh, unfortunately, a, a very weak policy. But going after the Iranians would mean serious escalation. Well, that's part of the deal. This has been going on for 40 years where we've been hoping uh, the Iranians uh, will actually turn out to be moderates. Uh, those moderate Iranians seem to be very hard to find. Uh, at some point, you either stand up for yourself and you make it clear that anyone who deals with this is going to pay a very steep price. And if you don't do that, then you are going to, you're going to be on the receiving end of this. And the Iranians smell weakness. The Chinese do too. The Houthis do as well. Um, and that's really a lesson that should have been learned by most people at about the age of five in the schoolyard. Understood. Thank you so much, Grant Newsham, for your take on this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Two U.S. Navy SEALs have gone missing in the Gulf of Aden. Defense officials say they disappeared yesterday. That was on a mission to take over a vessel carrying Iranian missile parts bound for Somalia. Officials said the boat, which did not have a country flag, was planning to transfer missile parts, warheads and engines to another vessel off the coast. The U.S. Navy says they recognize the boat because it has a history of transporting illegal weapons. Officials say one SEAL got knocked overboard by high waves as the team was boarding. His teammate went in after him. Now both are missing. The Navy said the rest of the team made it onto the boat. They took about a dozen crew members into custody, and after confiscating the weapons, they sank the boat. U.S. Navy SEALs doing what they do best. Yes. Yeah, hopefully those missing will be recovered. Yeah, for sure. Let's hope so. And we will definitely keep a, clo a close eye on the developments there. But right now, we have to wrap up our show right here. But we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.